I'm here with uh, Denise Bossert, and uh, we're going to talk about her book, Gifts of the Visitation, a reflection on Mary's visitation and what it teaches us about evangelization. So let's just start talking about some of the points that you draw from uh, that mystery of the rosary, the visitation. Okay. Well, the visitation is the second mystery, joyful mystery, and comes right after the Annunciation. And I take a look in the gifts of the visitation of what occurred in those three months. So from the moment just after the Annunciation uh, through the three months that the Blessed Mother spent in Ein Karim, in Elizabeth's home in Ein Karim. And I look at the visitation with the understanding that it is a blueprint, essentially, for evangelization. And we tend to overthink it. We tend to think it's too complicated and impossible. But if we look at, at that, we realize it's who she is, it's what she does, and it is not complicated. It's not easy, but it's not complicated, and we are all called to do the same thing. And you come up with um, nine points of meditation upon that. Do you want to just go through some of those? Sure. Yes. Um, well, I begin with what I call a prerequisite that's not really counted in the nine, and that is that you must be open to whatever the Holy Spirit calls you to do. So we look at the Blessed Mother. She had the prerequisite of being open. Not only that, she, was, she is the Immaculate Conception, but she tells us, be open to whatever he calls you to do or whatever he tells you to do. So the prerequisite in sharing the good news of the gospel is to be open. Even if it comes to you and it seems like that sounds like just like a crazy idea. I don't think, you know, I can't do that. Don't think those things. Just be ready to be open to whatever it is. And then I start with the nine. And there are nine, so the book can be read as a novena or it can be read just as a story, just a reflection on the visitation. And the first one is spontaneity. So when the calling comes, when you do discern through the Holy Spirit what it is you're supposed to do, and Our Lady whispers to you, give your spontaneous yes to it. Don't overthink it. Don't, don't add all of your, but I can't do this, or what about that? In fact, you probably are in the middle of a, a moment where it seems an unlikable a scenario for you. So maybe you've lost someone, maybe you're grieving. I was in a season of grieving, for example, when I came into the church. I'm a convert. So when I came into the church, it was after my father was a pastor, had suffered and died. So my call, I could have said, I, I can't study this whole Catholic thing, even though grace is showing up because I'm too busy grieving. But I didn't. I wanted to know truth. So whether, you know, you just found out you're pregnant or you've got a terrible diagnosis or something, it's our improbable situations that make us most appropriately postured for whatever the call is we've received. So we look at Our Lady. She could have said, I'm a teenager. Nobody's going to understand. I, I, can't, I can't give my yes to this, but she didn't say that. She spontaneously says yes. And we look at Elizabeth. Elizabeth is long past the season of being able to bear a child. She could have said, I can't raise a child to adulthood. I won't even see him grown, grown up. And think of the gossip at Ein Karim when they find out that I'm pregnant. If she didn't say any of those things, she accepted and embraced what God had for her. So spontaneity with whatever it is, even if it seems like, what? Right. We say yes. And let's talk a little bit about the visitation, just to bring people up to speed. Um, maybe some things about the journey itself and how long some of the scholars think yeah. it took. And right. 
Well, having been to the Holy Land a number of times, in fact, I, I try to go every year even as a personal retreat. I tell my husband, don't give me any presents. I don't want any gifts this year. Just we're going to put well, all that money so I can go to the Holy Land. And, um, and I rent a car. I have the luxury of renting a car. If you go on a pilgrimage, you have the luxury of being in a luxury bus. But she didn't have that. She went from Nazareth to Ein Karim to share Jesus Christ, the one she had received, with her relative Elizabeth. And that is 80 miles over the most rugged terrain on planet Earth. And she didn't have a car. She didn't have a bus. She didn't have a phone. She couldn't text ahead. She couldn't look up Google Maps. She couldn't do any of those things. She just set out to go visit her relative Elizabeth. So really, in doing that, we think about it. We received... We receive our Lord, just like we did this morning at Mass. We receive our Lord, and we're sent out. How many of us would even go eight miles, let alone 80 miles? And then we would have a car, and we would have, you know, roadside safety patrol or whatever. She went 80 miles at a time when there, there were no safety features built into this journey. And I know we spoke the other day, it was, there were like two possible routes, and would there have been a caravan or anything like that, or would she have been by herself? Or? You know, that's an interesting thing. I, I think there's a possibility there might have been pockets of time, uh, little pieces of the journey where she might have been alone, but certainly her parents would not have just, go ahead, Mary, go. They would have entrusted her to a caravan going, and that was part of, that's part of the, the Hebrew people is the pilgrimage, and we're a pilgrimage people you know, because we're, those are our matriarchs, the patriarchs. So the likelihood that she attached to a group that was going um, is very, it's very likely. Now, we know that if, if it had been during the, the warm months, she probably would have been in the higher elevations and passed through the hills of Samaria and then into the hills of Judea. Um, if, it, if it had not been in the hotter times, maybe cooler times, she could have passed through the Jordan River Valley and then into the hills of Judea. Either way, that is not an easy journey. I, the hills of Judea, I, I had trouble, I don't know about you, but I had trouble walking, even, it just, and I ran it because I wanted to get to the top of the, the visitation, you know, where the church of visitation is. That's just one hill in Judea. And she went 80 miles of this. It's just profoundly mysterious and the other thing is you're constantly drinking water while you're in the holy land and she they would have gone caravans knew to go from spring to spring in fact the word ein in ein karam means spring ein karam means spring of the vineyard which is just beautiful that i think that it means spring of the vineyard but like ein gedi is also another spring and that's where david fled when king saul was pursuing him so they would have gone from ein spring to ein spring and i think we can take from that too that we when we evangelize we are moving between springs maybe that's not a moment of grace and sending we're out there doing it and we're moving but if we're starting to feel dehydrated and we need some hydration grace then we need to get to our spring someone in a talk recently asked me so what is the best spring and so that's a no-brainer it's the eucharist that is our ultimate spring so if you're feeling like you need hydration, you, you need the living water, <laughs> you need the Eucharist. Right. And then the next one you have is courage. Yes, I love courage. There are actually two of these gifts that are gifts we received when we were confirmed. So when we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, courage is one of those gifts we received. 
Now, a lot of people say, I'm not courageous enough to evangelize. Well, that's not really true because then I say, how many of you were confirmed? And, of course, all the Catholics raise their hands, you know. And I say, then you have this gift by way of your confirmation. You just need to ask for more of an outpouring of it. And the reason why, I think, the reason why all of us have this, it's a universal gift we have with confirmation, is because God knew we would need courage in order to share his son. You have to be courageous. And then I also press upon people. If you haven't had to be courageous for your faith, maybe you're not stepping out enough. Maybe you need to think about doing something that does take a little bit of courage to do it because it's a requirement to be courageous, or you wouldn't have received that gift by the Holy Spirit at your confirmation. And so, like, reflecting on Mary's, Mary's courage be, like, the journey and embracing this, I guess, the virginal conception would take a lot of courage. Absolutely. I mean, I think we need to ponder what it was she was saying yes to because even though she gave a full spontaneous yes, a complete yes, she knew what it meant in her culture to say yes to this. It potentially meant she would be stoned to death. It meant that Joseph would not understand. And she didn't say to the angel, you know what, I'll give my yes if you go and convince Joseph. She didn't say, I'll give my yes if my parents are on board with this. She didn't say, I will consider saying yes if all of Nazareth gets behind this. She said, the Lord wants this of me, he has my yes, I, I give my fiat, so let it be done unto me according to your word. And so that took courage because it wasn't a mindless yes she gave, it was a full assent to, you know, we talk about what's, what constitutes serious sin, it's, it's giving your full yes to a serious sin. Well, God is asking us to give our full yes to grace. And so you know, that takes courage. It takes ultimate courage to, I know this is going to require some things that are tough of me, hard for me, but sharing the joy of the gospel is worth it. And I've been given this great gift. The greatest gift is the source and summit of our faith. I've been given the Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. How dare I keep that to myself? You know, I talk about when I give talks, I talk about social justice and, and how, you know, if, if you have a whole lot, you should share from the abundance that you have. But there is a spiritual injustice if we, and we have, been given the greatest gift in the Eucharist and we don't share it. That is the greatest tragedy because out of our great spiritual wealth that we've been given, we are not sharing. So we are sent at the end of Mass to go and share and bear Christ to someone else. As you point out, that's exactly what Mary's has conceived Jesus. She's bringing Jesus to Elizabeth, and we've received the Eucharist. So, and through baptism, you know, we're temples of the Holy Spirit. So we're bringing Jesus to others as well, literally, like she was literally. But uh, okay. And um, you know, when when we think about it, that is that's where it, that's where it really gets going. You know, you receive Jesus Christ, so that's the nourishment for, what, you to stay in your bedroom in Nazareth? Yeah. 
You know, no, no, that's not what it's all about. It's not for you to go and sit in your bedroom in Nazareth or wherever your home may be. It's for you to get up and find the Ayn Karim or the town where the person you need to visit is or who is your Elizabeth. And of course, I'm saying all of these things in a figurative sense because who who is it you are most inclined to be able to share the joy with? Um, and embedded in who God has made you and who he has surrounded you with, he has already put upon your spirit who he wants you to begin to reach. So as she pondered the words of the angel, she realized embedded in that message was what to do next. And joy drove her to go and share what she, who she had received with her Elizabeth. And we are called to do exactly the same thing. And I'm struck too in the passage in the Bible, you know, it's like it just jumps immediately to you know, and she immediately got up and went. <laughs> yeah, great, great haste. haste. Yeah. She went immediately. Yeah, she didn't sit and ponder it. And and a lot of, I mean, our popes have talked talked about this. You know, um, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth talked about it because she went with great haste. She didn't sit and oh wow. In fact, one of the things, and this comes out later, but I talk about she might have thought I'm going to be the mother of God. Our wow, I'm, uh, you know, he's going to have the throne of his father David forever and forever. While she did ponder what the significance of it means, Scripture tells us, she didn't ponder it like I just said it. She pondered it as what a great, wonderful thing has been done to, unto me, the handmaid of the Lord. I must go out and share him with another. So we are not to get caught up on what, platform we've been given or what audience we have we are each to humbly go and share the one we receive though we are unworthy we are to go and share him with another with humility in fact this morning i was just reading um an address by pope francis you know he's especially eloquent on the missionary mandate for the church and i was reading an address this morning about uh, prayer for vocations a reflection he just gave and he said, you know, the missionary dimension is not something just added on to the church. You know, it belongs to our essence. And that is, Jesus is the one anointed with the Holy Spirit, fully God, fully man has the Holy Spirit, of course. We share in that anointing and are sent out. And Mary is a type of the church, you know, a prefigurement of the church, personification of the church. We see that. I mean, we see like the mystery of the church happening in her, that she's conceiving the word, which is the, we're supposed to have that life within us, Jesus be born in us. And we see that dimension of missionary, just in the same event, you know, as the Annunciation, uh, she's, she goes out. So it is a powerful testimony to that missionary, the essential missionary nature of the church. So, and then, he also, Pope Francis points out about, you know, he's always talking about Christian joy. That's your next topic. And, and we see joy at the beginning of the gospel. You have, I always like to say this scene too. This is from Pope Benedict. He said, you know, Zechariah didn't believe his annunciation from the angel. He was struck mute. So in this house of silence, she comes with praise, singing, joy, a voice, you know. <laughs> I, I love this part, too, and I'm so glad you brought up um, about Zechariah, too. Because here is Elizabeth in Ayn Karim, 
and her husband cannot, like we're talking right now, he can't say this is what the angel said. I don't know, maybe they came up with some kind of unique sign language. I don't know how they were trying to communicate with one another. But then Mary shows up, and Mary says, I spoke to the, the angel spoke with me too, and the angel spoke of you, Elizabeth. And this is what the angel told me. And so for the first time, Elizabeth is able to hear from the Blessed Mother's own lips what the angel has said regarding Elizabeth's pregnancy. So, and what was it driving her? Joy drove her. Joy drove her to go and share that joy with another person, Elizabeth. And I think every step of those 80 miles of that journey, she must have been driven by the joy. I cannot wait to talk with Elizabeth. I cannot wait. We, she's the only one on this planet at this point who gets what's happening and who can commune with me and I with her in this first Christ-centered, truly Christ-centered friendship. You know, we have Jonathan, David in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, but this is the first Christ-centered friendship and it's between two women, and we women, we love to talk, first of all, about pregnancy, and we also love to talk about the faith and and just ponder those things. We're kind of contemplative, I think, by nature, because we're childbearers. Um, I think that she must have been thinking Elizabeth will understand, and Joy wants to share Joy. So. And, you know, the line from Luke chapter 1 says, you know, behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth. This, so this is at the end of the Annunciation. In her old age has conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing will be impossible. So, I mean, I've always taken that it's like a sign. You know, I don't know if it's to help Mary. I mean, Mary had to live by faith. But, you know, too, Pope Benedict points out how you know, church fathers, all those Old Testament miraculous births of barren women conceiving you know, as an image of Israel, and then it's kind of a prefigurement of Mary's conception. Uh, but Mary has to believe something greater, a virginal conception. Mm-hmm. Yes. So do you reflect on that, like the sign of Elizabeth or what that means, or any thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, later in the book I talk about humility um, because that is one of the gifts of, that we have to have in order to, to share our Lord. And here we have Elizabeth, who up until now has been barren. So she's been at the lowest strata of her society because she cannot bear a child. And now she's in old age, so the, the, the time for childbearing is over. But now with this, this sudden pregnancy late in life, she is now raised to the highest position in her social strata because they would say she's like sarah she's like matriarchs of old what is in fact scripture even tells us that when john is born they say what will what will become of this child he must be something special you know so they see all of the markings of grace all over this and so she is raised to the highest level suddenly because she's akin to their matriarch sarah and in walks the mother of god now, Elizabeth could have said, how long are you staying, really, three months, you know, a teenage 
mother in my home for three months. I have other things right now that are on my mind. She doesn't at all. Of course, we know she doesn't. And Mary's story tops her exactly. own. Exactly. <laughs> and Mary's story. I mean, she's like, here's the mother of my Lord coming, and I'm suddenly, for the first time ever, at the highest pinnacle. In, I'm at the zenith in, in the social strata. Instead, she recognizes who's so much higher than she is. The mother of my Lord has come to me. Who am I that the mother of the Lord should come to me? I find so much humility in that because she is willing to let herself be eclipsed when Mary comes in, even though she knows the rest of society doesn't get it yet. And they don't understand who Mary is, but she does. Um, and I think on the, the other hand, you have Mary coming, and she could have been jealous. I talk about what steals joy? Jealousy steals joy. But they didn't let that happen. She sees Elizabeth at the highest place now in the society, and she's not jealous of that at all. She sees her with a husband at her side who completely understands what's happening. And probably at this point, Joseph hasn't yet had his dream. So she probably is wishing she had the companionship of a spouse who, who understood it. And she's just going on the Holy Spirit and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So we, we see these two women who could have succumbed to jealousy and to other questions, and, and, and you know how we tend to like bristle at one another when we're like rubbing elbows with each other? Instead, she says, come in, and she doesn't say how long. She says, just come in, just come in this day. And they minister to one another for three months, and they don't let anything steal that joy. And that, you know, that pregnancy is such a beautiful way to begin the new covenant, the gospel. Mm -hmm. You know, the gift, joy of new life, which Jesus is giving us. And uh, and I never even, I never thought about Elizabeth just having joy from her physician, you know. So it's, uh, it must have been very super abundance of joy, right? Right. And I think that feeds into an, another one of the gifts that is actually a gift that we have by way of our confirmation is wonder and awe in the Lord. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the chapters also, because I started to think about these two women together and who they are. And, and, and we know who the Blessed Mother is. And in, in, in the first chapter of Luke, we also learned that Elizabeth is a righteous woman who has observed all the commandments of the Lord blamelessly, Luke tells us. And so they're together three months. Not only are they cooking and cleaning, and not only is the Blessed Mother taking care of Elizabeth in her old-age pregnancy, which she would have needed, so there's hospitality. Um, we know that they're also inclined to talk about the faith. They definitely, in three months, talked about, they would have, first of all, they would have Shabbat, they would have had Sabbath every week, and so they would have, and, and we would pray, they would have prayed every day, and think about the moment when these two women, especially, because I think Mary understood all through it, but there would have been moments where Elizabeth suddenly got it, and got certain things. And it would have gone deeper and deeper for her during those three months. And I thought about w the moments when she realized the parting of the sea. Mary, that's because of what's happening in you. And the fire falling from heaven and, and Jericho walls falling. A donkey speaks so that Israel will not be cursed. Everything that's happened, all the stories we grew up with, we're for this moment in time, and nobody else but the two of us know it, and it all is centered on the one who's growing within you, Mary. Mm -hmm. 
And I think Elizabeth, which of course Mary knew the whole time, but I think those revelations would have come to Elizabeth. And in those moments, I think they would have been so taken by wonder and awe that everything that they, they talked about as the Hebrew people was centered on this event, that they would have probably t teared up, sat down, and gotten to the no words to talk. Have you ever been in those moments where you're so filled with wonder and awe that there are no words, and you just sit in that moment? And then, of course, that passes, and you get up, and you have to cook and clean and do all the things that you have to do. But I think of all of the incredible stories that we hear in the Old Covenant, the reason for it was the incarnation. And that's right there, and they're experiencing it. Yeah, and you know, John the Baptist is like the end of the Old Testament exactly. prophets. You know, so it's like the big, it's the two, Old Covenant yeah, meeting here and and appreciating, reflecting on the Old Covenant. You know, and seeing, actually seeing what it fully means. You know, through the lens of the New Covenant, and you know, it's also it just brings to mind. You know, talking about hospitality. Um, and I know I've come to appreciate that just in the family. It's like some grandmothers and things pass on. Um, you know, just what a hole that leaves in the family, you know, to bring people together. And, and to me, it speaks of just like natural level of friendship mm -hmm. and evangelization and just being a decent, kind person to invite them to, you know, to the gospel, to invite them to church or something. And what's also striking me right now, too, is that Mary is the model of evangelization, but we often, when we think of missionary, we usually think of these really tough guys going into right. desolate areas and, um, you know, just suffering and all this kind of stuff. How does the teenage girl fit into that? <laughs> I think one of the things that shows us is that anyone can evangelize. Um, we tend to look at her and we think, oh, she's the blessed mother, of course. That's what she was supposed to do is to bear and share Christ. But I think by the fact that she's a teenager and she's doing something unthinkable, like traveling, you know, through the Holy Land, 80 miles. And then I didn't write this in the book, but later on I thought, you know how horrible it is to have to come back after vacation? Think about that journey back, that journey back over 80 miles back to Nazareth where people didn't understand she still had to face that, the coming back home. So as a teenager, she is giving this immense yes. And when I give talks, I talk about the fact that it doesn't matter if you're young or old, because the visitation shows us whether you're young and you are inclined to say, ooh, maybe God's calling me to do this. We tend in our youth to be like willing to like try on ideas. And then when we're older, like, oh, I think, no, I'm not, you know, I that door closed. Neither of those is true, because the truth of the matter is, which is to be listening to the Holy Spirit, whether we're young, like the Blessed Mother, or whether we're old, like Elizabeth, mm -hmm. that God chooses from young to old, cradle to grave. There's, there's no time where it's like, okay, now's not good for me. Yeah. So, um, and I, I think in today's world, too, the youth have a, you know, we have a cult of youth, and so marketers, Madison Avenue is trying to target youth to get money out of them, to get them to buy things. So the world pays attention to youth. You know, oftentimes young celebrities are setting trends and culture and all that kind of stuff. But I, so, I, you know, as many have pointed out, you know, the youth have a special role to play in evangelization. I mean, I always say that about World Youth Days, just it gets the world's attention. 
if a big youth, if youth are coming to listen to what the church has to say, they said, what? You know, I've discarded that. How is it drawing young people? You know? I, th I think the Elizabeth receiving Mary into her home, I think that is such a profound story and significance for young people because this is a multi-generational reality and truth that young people, you have a message that will ignite the heart of, of someone who's eld your elders. So even if you see them as a matriarch or patriarch in your faith, you can bring into flame or fan into flame maybe a fire that's sort of like dwindling or maybe it's been barren their whole lives and you can be the one who sets that ablaze. So certainly there is something for us, whether we're old or we're young in this, this encounter. It's not even just a story. It is a mystery. It is a truth, a reality. And you touched on it, too, with Old Covenant embracing New Covenant, with Elizabeth embracing Mary. That is the old and the new embracing one another. And it's, it's like the kiss of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Um, and in the very last verses, the very last chapter, the very last book of the Old Testament, it's prophesied that the new Elijah will come. And we know from the first chapter of Luke that Elijah to come is John the Baptist. So within Elizabeth, she's carrying the, the fulfillment of those last words of the, the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of all salvation history. Okay, are there any points left? Uh, uh, one. I'd, I'd like to bring up the last one is Thanksgiving. And then, of course, after that is the sending. Okay, now you're ready to go out, do it, evangelize. But I thought about Thanksgiving as the last one. And the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. I mean, the, the core of the word. You know more than I do. You're the theologian. But I've been told that Eucharist, in essence, that word it is Jesus Christ, real presence, but it's to give thanksgiving and joy of the one you've received. And I believe that that's what Elizabeth did. She is the first one who had enthronement to the sacred heart in her home, which is profound to think about. She was the first one for three months, had an enthronement to the sacred heart. In fact, his heart was beating its first beats in her home. And as she is pondering the fact that the Blessed Mother is going to be leaving and returning to to Nazareth and she's holding her son John the Baptist I think she probably turned to Mary and said thank you because Elizabeth only has this son because of Mary's yes and that doesn't usually strike us because chronologically that doesn't make sense but the God who is outside of time it does make sense in a God who's outside of time Elizabeth only has a son because Mary's yes is given and is profound because there would be no need for the forerunner without there being the Messiah. So I think she turned in the moment of the birth and turned to Mary and said, thank you. Thank you for your yes. Because every gift we've been given comes to us by way of Mary also. And it is a call to say thank you. A call to say thank you for this one you've given us, who is is life to us, and brings life to us. Um, 
And then, of course, it's the sending. So now you have received this. Now you have received Mary and the one that she brings to you. You need to go out and to share it. There's, there's a place where, and I can't remember if it's encyclical, and you probably know where, but it says, it is unthinkable, and the word is unthinkable, that one would receive the Eucharist and then not turn and share and bear it to another. Mm. And, and then also it is Pope John Paul II who said that it is our supreme duty. And we don't think of it as a duty. We shouldn't think of it as, oh, it's a duty. I have to do it. It's like a chore. As I see someone outside, you know, cutting the grass. It's not like that. It's a different kind of, it's your supreme duty. It's your highest duty to, to share salvation with another person. Yeah, I, I don't know where that specific thing is about thinking, but um, I know in John Paul II's document on the mission of the church, he talks about because we've received this, because we love, been loved, experienced God's love, you know, that, that is what sends us out because we've received something, you know, we have to, to share that. And um, so I like, too, the image, you know, just looking at Mary as the model of evangelization, and being a young person, you know, definitely, I go to wise old priests. You know, I we need the wisdom of the older people, and we've had excellent pastors, you know, in the church and our popes and things. Um, but the church is always youthful. You know, she is always young and growing and vibrant. If I could just share one little story about someone who was young, who impacted me, a young Catholic. I was a junior in high school. I'm a convert. I said at the beginning, convert. Preacher's kid. And I was in a class in high school, junior in high school, a debate class. My sister and I were the only girls in the class, and we were also the only Protestant preacher's kids in the whole school. And then there were some boys in the class, and they were all happened to be Catholic, even though it was a, prod, uh, not prod, it was a, a public school. We didn't have a Catholic school in our town, so everybody went to the public school. But in this class, it was a bunch of Catholic boys and then my sister and I. And Bob Johans was in the class with me. He's a junior in high school at this time. And a really good friend. And he just was always laughing, had such a great personality. And one day, I thought he was joking with me. One day, we were just kind of like casually talking. And we decided to have this casual debate on faith. Now, the teacher couldn't tell us to do that because it was a public school, but kids have conversations in, in lulls in class. And so he said, so why aren't you Catholic? I don't understand why you're not Catholic, Denise. And I thought he was joking with me because Bob always joked. And I said, oh, Bob, we can't all be Catholic, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and I thought he would laugh, right? And Bob got serious. And he said, no. I mean, all the saints are holy, so holy. And they're all Catholic. Why aren't you Catholic, Denise? And I said, well, those saints are your saints. Those are Catholic saints, Bob. Those aren't my saints. I mean, my saint is like Billy Graham. I couldn't think of one saint. This is so sad. I couldn't think of one saint from after the apostolic era to Billy Graham. I did not know church history at all, which is kind of like the, the Protestant dilemma. You, you have to kind of like cut everything else out. And so he, I thought, well, that's a pretty strong point. But we moved on. He moved on. He said, okay. Okay, so then my saints are not your saints, okay. Then he said, but what about the long line? And he didn't use the term apostolic succession. So you don't have to have all of the terms down. There's the concepts. He had the concept. He said, what about the long line of leaders? 
leading the church, going all the way back to Peter. And now I knew I was in trouble because I didn't have that. I had no lineage. And the only thing I could say, and I was trying to refute it, it was a debate, even though it was like an organic debate that came up in, our, in debate class. I said, well, your church hasn't always been the bright and shining star she should be. You've had some you know, <laughs> terrible popes or whatever. And all I had was a church that started like 100, 200 years earlier. I had no claim to his, historicity. And it's so funny because, Father, when I became Catholic, I called him up. I said, Bob, I became Catholic, and I was talking to him about it. And, of course, he was stunned. The Protestant preacher's kid in our high school became <laughs> Catholic. And then I told him back, do you remember the conversation we had in debate class? And do you know what he said? He said, I have absolutely no memory of that conversation at oh, really? all. <laughs> and I think that is also key for young people to realize you may not even remember what you say, it may not be something that stays with you, but in eternity, you're going to know it. You're going to know that you had an impact on someone because I remember almost word for word what he said, and his two points are still solid points for why I'm Catholic mm -hmm. and what we have in our great treasure chest of being Catholic. And he was a junior in high school. So yay, Bob, and all the Bobs who are out there who are willing in high school to just Go ahead, if the Holy Spirit saints, I'll just put it out there. Uh, we don't have much time, but I just wanted to ask you about, uh, you talk about in your conversion story about uh, witnessing your father's suffering and how John of the Cross and those Carmelite writers helped you. What was some of the, a big piece there that you got or sunk in or that touched you from Catholic teaching that helped you through that? It is miraculous. Nothing short of, of a miracle. Grace is like that, though, um, that I found St. John of the Cross and Dark Night of the Soul. And I found an easy translation, which must have also been miraculous because he's supposed to be pretty deep, and I, I was able to read it. My master's in, is in literature, so God was getting my attention through what I knew. So if it's art or music or whatever, he gets our attention with what he's put in our heart. Um, and so I was reading St. John of the Cross. As I had this question, my dad had suffered terribly and then died of something completely unrelated. He had a pulmonary embolism that took him suddenly. And I was left with this question, why, Lord, would you permit him to suffer for years only to take him suddenly? You could have spared him the pain. Why did he go through that suffering? Why did I see him go through that suffering? It was terribly hard. And I knew God wasn't broken, which could only mean that my theology was incomplete. And so within months, I found this book, St. John of the Cross, Dark Night of the Soul, and this was the essence of it. It may feel like the Lord has abandoned you when you pass through suffering, but the Lord of all suffering has not abandoned you. He's sitting closer to you than he has ever been before. You just can't see him because the room is just that dark, hence the title, Dark Night of the Soul. And he talks about the language of suffering, and I realized the things I'd heard my dad saying it was a language. It was like learning a foreign language, and St. John of the Cross was opening it up and helping to translate it for me. And from there, I went to his spiritual companion, St. Teresa of Avila. It was in the middle of Interior Castle, her book, that I knew I want what they had. And the next thought I had was, in order to even have a chance or a hope of having that kind of faith and spirituality, and this is Grace, this is not Denise, I knew 
I would have to call my faith home, their faith home, because that was the faith home that gave birth to that spirituality, which means I knew I had to become Catholic to have a hope or a chance at that kind of faith. And that's when I knocked on the church door and said, how do you do this? I, I don't know anyone who's Catholic. How do I become Catholic? So that was my journey in. And so the, the, it kind of centered more than more on like, where are you, Lord, than why? Because there's not a, an easy answer for why there's suffering. Right. It really was. It, it wasn't so much a why in that I, it was why in that why would you have permitted him to suffer? But as soon as I understood the context of a suffering Lord has not abandoned him, that's all I needed to know. But that a suffering Lord loves. And that this was a call to love and to just strip everything else away to prepare him for eternity. That was his preparation. And it was this, this and it talks about the dark night of the soul can even happen to those of us who are not yet ready to be called into eternity, but it's to prepare us for next things. And I realized that there was a next thing for me. So what was the next thing for me? So for dad, it was eternity. He was being called into eternity. But for me, it was my conversion. And that was why I had the, the vicariously seen him go through the suffering and left me with this question, what was that dark night bearing fruit in my life? It was to be my conversion. I know I, I've reflected on as a priest, you know, we have the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. And one of the descriptions of what the sacrament does is during physical suffering, it is connected to our spiritual life and that it can be a, a challenge, you know, maybe a temptation to despair. And uh, so we have that sacrament to help us with faith. And I so wish, you know, I know in the grand scheme of things, in, in his divine will and his permissive will that the Lord had this all under control. But it would have been a blessing, I think, to have seen my father be able to have access to the sacramental life, that sacrament, and to be able to converse with him and to see him receive the Eucharist when he was going through that. It's, those are gifts that we have as Catholics that you know maybe we're not even thinking about, but we have, if we, when we pass through those dark nights, we have the Eucharist. When we pass through those dark nights, we have the crucifix we can look at. It's not an empty cross. We can look at that cross and we can say, he's right here with me. We have the anointing of the sick. We have all that we need. It's all of our Ein Karem. It's all of our springs that we need in the journey of life because life is a pilgrimage. And so we have everyone we need when we need it. All right, Denise, well, thank you so much for chatting with us. It's been great uh, to hear your story. It's been great being able to share this with you and to meet you finally in person and talk about Our Lady and, uh, and Elizabeth. Thank you.